0: All right. It's uh, June 21st, 2014. This is Solder Smoke 162. And we're uh, very pleased to have with us part two of our discussion with Pete Giuliano, N6QW. We've been talking, last time we talked uh, a lot about uh, homebrewing sideband gear. And and that was a lot of fun. We got a lot of good feedback. People really like that. But we, of course, we didn't get all the way through it. So we we're going to try to Try to finish up as much as you can. Finish up this topic. Um, I'm just going to start out. I'm going to s- explain the delay. I always start out with excuses about why it's been so <laughs> long, but I have a good one. And I, I've been building something different. Uh, I, uh, you know, after after building two bid axes, uh, which were great fun, but they were kind of winter projects. You know, spring and summer is here, and I decided I, I needed to build something different. And so I took on the Moxon project, and I'm building a a Moxon. Uh, two-element wire beam for uh, for 17 meters. It's basically just a rectangular loop with the uh, reflector on one side and the driven element on the other. And the whole thing is held up in the air, sort of like hex beam fashion by four uh, fiberglass uh, telescoping crappy fishing poles. And uh, I've had great fun with it, and it's just been been wonderful because it's so so different from working on a small circuit board to be out there in the yard you know, building this big thing and i've got it it's almost ready to go pete it's almost ready to go up on the roof and if weather permitting and scheduling permitting it might it might actually make it up onto the roof tomorrow and i can't wait to spin that thing around so what are you what have you been working on
1: well uh still working on some sideband radio projects and uh continue i'm using myself and uh typically uh at least once uh, during a uh, homebrew session, solder my fingers together. So if you don't solder your fingers together at least once when you have uh, the on-on, then you're not doing it right. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, i got a couple couple sideband uh, radios uh, on the bench here. Um, I'm looking at uh, taking some boat anchors and uh, trying to update them with DDSs. So that's, that's what's on the bench right now. Well,
0: that's it's a real interesting topic for me, Pete, because, you know, you... And maybe we could talk about this later on in today's episode because so one of the things I did want to talk about is what I should do with my HW-101 because I blame you for putting these ideas in my head. You got, <laughs> I saw those pictures you put out about that HW-101 with, uh, with the digital readout there, and that got me thinking. And uh, as listeners to the show will know that HW-101 has been on the chopping block several times now, and it's been saved, saved at the last minute, but it's it's there, and it's it's poised to become something different, something more solid state, but we could talk about that uh, maybe a little bit later. I think the first topic we need to talk about is something that we kind of left off from last time, and that's amplifiers and exorcisms. Um, this is very appropriate because we've been all looking at the, uh, the emails uh, from uh, our friend Bert, WF7I, who has... I think at the uh, the instigation of the Cyber Smoke podcast, pulled out a um, a long pending X twenty kit. I think he's had it for for five years and has been working on it on and off for about nine months. And finally, Bert decided it was time to finish this thing. And so he uh, he got to the point where you you fire up the RF amplifier, and as many of us have experienced, that is a, a moment of, uh, of of some real frustration because those. Amplifiers often want to behave as oscillators, and then you begin the, uh, the kind of uh, really frustrating process of, of debugging and uh, turning the, the oscillator back into an amplifier. So I wonder what your thoughts are uh, on this, uh, Pete.
1: Well, uh, you know, I'd like to address the subject specifically dealing with uh, the BIDX and um, my experience with that. Uh, shortly after Farhan uh, came out with a design, I said I got to build one of those. So this goes back to about 2005, and uh, that the circuit that, that's currently floating around for the BitX is different from his initial circuit. But I, I had a real problem with feedback, and it was traced to the the way in which uh, the circuit was designed. That uh, essentially the RF amplifier uh, in the transmit mode was feeding back into the uh, mixer stage. So I had to solve that problem with, uh, with some uh, an additional relay and uh, essentially disconnect that wire that, that went from the RF amplifier stage into essentially the receiver mixer. And, and that gets to the point of when, when you're dealing with RF amplifier circuits, you really have to watch the circuit topology. How, how is it laid out? And uh, the first part of the exorcism is to, to look at the physical layout and see if there's some unwanted coupling that you're getting from the, the output into the input. And that's typically, uh, I mean, there's the only difference between an oscillator and an amplifier is the level of feedback. <laughs> if you get, if you if satisfy uh, for the technical types, satisfy the Barkhausen criterion where K beta equals one, and that's the, the K is a constant, beta is a feedback ratio. If that equals one, it suddenly amplifier turns into an oscillator. And, and that only happens because the fact that you're, you're, you have some unwanted coupling out of the output and the input. I, I have sort of standardized on a layout. I, I found something that works, and I keep replicating that over and over again because it provides sufficient isolation from the output back into the input. And that's, that's the key. And you got, you got to watch that. Uh, I mean, it's just one thing to start tacking stuff down onto a circuit board it's another thing to think about what am i doing here and what makes the most um, make, makes the most sense uh, earlier today bill i provided you some photographs of some uh, uh, final RF amplifiers and uh, perhaps you'll load those up in your blog but but you can see how you've got this distancing between the input and the output and and i keep building that circuit over and over again and, and it works all the time so uh, you, you need to pay attention to that, and specifically on the Bidex, I had a problem when I first built mine because of this unwanted coupling. So uh, some people, their layout, you know, didn't affect it whatsoever. In my case, it did, and I solved a little uh, relay to uh, to make sure that it was not feeding back anything into the uh, the mixer stage from the uh, final RF amplifier.
0: Yeah. So if a I know I, Go ahead. I had, I had similar problems with the Bidex too. I mean, it, and, and I, and it, you know, it's not really, I, I think, like you said, it's more of a layout problem than a design problem. And it, there was that one lead that came down that kind of went from the receive portion to the transmit portion. And I, on my second Bidex, I actually had to put two relays in there kind of at both ends of the lead because it was causing, you got it. it was causing a problem on, on receive. It was really kind of hard to, ex- to explain, but for me, it was also a good example of how you kind of troubleshoot these kind of things. You look and you, you move and you say, okay, you start, you start asking yourself, how could this feedback be taking place? What are the possible avenues that the, the output is getting back to the input? You've got to realize that every one of those leads that you have on there is serving in a certain sense as a little antenna or a little inductor or, or half of a little capacitor that could be linking back to the input. So especially on those leads where you're carrying a lot of RF or on those leads that are connected to the input of a very high-gain amplifier, they could be working, those leads could be serving as a really excellent kind of transmit radiator or receive kind of pickup coil. And so that's what you really got to watch. And, you know, I, I think what you said about topology and not just tacking stuff down is very important because in other parts of the rig, you know, you don't have to be that careful because you're dealing with very, very low levels of RF. And so you could be lulled into a sense of complacency. You're going along and you're just building this thing, especially if you're building it kind of Manhattan or ugly style. And it's all—it's not all that critical. And things are going well and all these stages are working and then you get to that RF amplifier and you do the same thing and the thing just takes off on you. And so uh, I think you're absolutely right. You really have to pay attention to the topology. One thing—I one comment I'd make about on the... Um, on the bidex, I mean, I, I really like that, uh, Irf five ten rf amplifier stage that that Farhan had in the bidex. For me, that was the rf amplifier that gave me the least trouble that I've ever worked with, and it was it was really uh, really nice and 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 stable. I guess I did pay a lot of attention to the uh, to the layout, but as I said, even even with a lot of attention of attention, I had to go in there and do. There was a, at least a minimal amount of exorcism there in that one.
1: Right. There's another point, too, and I think this, this, this point comes from Wes Hayward, uh, uh, W7ZOI. And he, he makes the distinct point is, you know, you try to get by with the minimum amount of stages, and you, 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 you put them so that they're you know, running at max. And what happens is when you do that, you run the risk of, of unwanted uh, signals leaking out and it's far better to have three or four stages to get up to a one or two watts output than it is two stages. And uh, you're running them, uh, you know, to the max limit. So that's another thing, too, is to take a good hard look at the uh, stage gain. And if it takes uh, one or two more devices to get you there, uh, then you have uh, a reasonably stable signal coming in the output versus just two devices and... Uh, Boy, you got real problems with that. Yeah. So uh, that's another thing to take a good, hard look at. Yeah,
0: and I think that's one of the beauties of the bidex design is that that most of those amplifier stages are not at all running close to, to max. They're running them at relatively low gain, and so that that prevents you from being in this situation where they're um, they're going to be taken off. They're all uh, you know feedback amps too, and I think that helps. Yep. That helps with uh, with stability, and so I mean that design really helps you. But you really do get. Uh, Get it could get into trouble. When I looked at Burt's rig, you know, I, I've been, all of mine are kind of big, kind of uh, eight by 10 boards with lots of space. Uh, but when I looked at Burt's, it's, it's the Hendrix kit and it's on a, a really small board. It looks like it's about, you know, maybe, maybe four by four inches and small. And, and he was, he's talking about how it's supposed to put out, I think, 10 to 15 watts and that really, wow! I mean, for me, when I looked at that, I kind of, when I first saw the picture of the rig, I said, well, I can see why you've got, you got so much circuitry jammed into that one little board. And, you know, if you're pumping 10 Watts at one point there, I mean, just because of the size of the board, you're going to have, you know, 10 Watts within, you know, within a few centimeters of the input. And it's really hard to get the kind of, of spacing that would make that thing absolutely stable. And what Bird is noticing, I think, is, is what's going on here. He, he says that you know, if he runs it at 5 watts, it's stable. And he doesn't see any signs of it taking off on him. But if he tries to crank it up a bit and he tries to push it up to 10, 12 watts, then he starts seeing the signs of, of feedback, which is what you'd expect. Because you've got, you've got a feedback path there, but at low power levels, it's not meeting the, the, the criteria you mentioned. But you put a little bit more juice in there, and it does. Then you get the feedback loop, and then off it goes. So uh, right. I think this is another right. another kind of benefit of giving yourself a lot of space.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I wanted to comment uh, one, one more point about the Bidex. Uh, that is really a robust design. Uh, when, when I built mine in 2005, I, I used sockets in all the transistors. And I ran all kinds of different transistors in there, and, and it worked and i mean that you can't say that for, for most circuits i mean most uh, they optimize the circuit for a specific device but that that and as you point out it's the, all the stages are not high gain so uh, you are able to I, I had a bag of 2n706s and uh, ran those through there and 2n3904s uh, two 2n2222 two so whatever you got plug in the socket and you're ready to go so uh, that speaks well to the to the design and that the fact that it can handle all of the only one area I ran into a problem was with the uh, carrier oscillator on the two n seven o sixes, and I think the junction, junction capacitance of so two n seven o six is different from the thirty nine o fours and twenty two twenty twos, and and I had a little problem of warping the crystal uh, to right onto the uh, where the BFO should be. So. Uh, but that, that that I thought is uh, my hats off to Farhan. He's it's a superb design.
0: No, it's wonderful too. But you do you do notice I, the one difference I noticed in different types of transistors was in the um, in the mic amplifier circuit. When I when I put mine together, the mic amplifier. I just when I when I first got it going, I was first working on the transmitter. I was getting very very low levels of power out, and I I looked at um, the mic amp, and the mic amp was where the problem was. And I looked at the voltage on the collector and it was way low it should have been i mean it should have been like 6 or 8 volts and it was down around 1 or 2 volts and um i you know at this point i you know i checked everything and i knew that i had all the components in there that should be in there but here we find the advantage of working on a project where lots of people around the world are also working on the project so i just googled it a bit and i you know i googled like you know mic amp problem bit X, and sure enough there was a guy i think in norway who had come across the same problem and he when he looked at it he concluded that the in the original design the uh, the the transistor that they were using was uh not a, was, was was not a very high gain device at audio and and so he said that because we were using i think uh, 2n3904s or something like that it was it was, the result was that it was there was just too much current flowing through it, and it was bringing down the collector voltage. So he recommended a change a change in the bias um, uh, resistor network that I made, and then right away it it, uh, it 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 was right where it should. There you go. So it was it was a kind of a it was a very satisfying, very kind of collaborative uh, fix, and uh, it, I think it just shows you the way you have to do things when you're working on it. But uh, I mean, I, I always just counsel patience you really have to be patient when you're trying to to solve one of these problems uh, and you have to go at it methodically and I think you have to just sort of resign yourself to I'm going to fix this but maybe not today but I will eventually uh,
1: That that's kind of why I've standardized on the NE5534
0: IC or my microphone amplifier <laughs> you'll, you'll find every one of my radios is that's what I use yeah, well, I mean, we got a philosophical uh, thing there, too. You know, I have this uh, aversion to the, to the chips. And I know it's kind of irrational, uh, uh, Pete, but uh, I guess to each his own. But it is good to have those standard uh, practices. Hey, you know, I'm thinking, we were just talking about um, the size of the layout. And I'm a, I'm a, I was really admiring your, uh, your shirt pocket rig. So this might be a good moment to talk a little bit about, you know, wh- when you decide to build something small. And I think, I think this is kind of a strategic decision that homebrewers have to make. I mean, a lot of guys, I think, get, get attracted to, uh, to QRP and homebrewing when they see all these fantastic rigs that are being built you know, and, and stuffed into an Altoids tin or something really small. And I, you know, I, I, my experience has been that if I start with a box and a PC board that I think is big enough, Given my style of construction, like kind of Manhattan-style ugly, by the time I get to the end, I'm always kind of really short on space. So my last two projects, I decided to start big. And so I start with these 8x11 boards that that Jim, AL7RV, now W8NSA, sent me a while back. But even with those big boards, it's amazing. I start building a Bidex. I'm building on a board that's the size of a piece of printer paper. I think I got plenty of room, and then at the end, I'm at the left. I'm in the upper left-hand corner, just kind of scrounging to get stuff in there. Um, so I, I think it, it it takes a lot more skill and planning and what you'd call noodling to uh, to get the same kind of circuitry in a smaller enclosure. And I, I think that really when people are kind of starting out in uh, in homebrew construction, especially for sideband, they might be uh, you know well-advised to start with a big board and a big box and then have extra room instead of running out at the end. But maybe you could share with us some of your experiences with that beautiful shirt pocket rig. Uh,
1: Absolutely, and uh, I I should tell you uh, there's nothing wrong with building several versions of the same radio. Um, I I started out with the premise of trying to build a a really small shirt pocket radio, and uh, uh, version one... Uh, was almost twice the size of version two. And what I learned from version one, uh, I was able to apply it version two. But I, I'm, I'm going to make a general statement. Unless there's some real requirement uh, that's dictated by, like say you're a backpacker and you want to carry a sideband rig with you and it's got to be really small and it's got to fit in uh, just a corner of a knapsack or something like that, uh, there, there's no reason to go that small because it presents a lot of headaches. Uh, it presents a lot of headaches in the construction, presents a lot of headaches in uh, with regard to servicing. I mean, you you need to uh, check every circuit. Uh, you know, my premise is always start from the back end and work forward. So you got to make sure all those little individual boards work first before you tack them into the radio. And I should mention that uh, Allison KB1GMX uh, that that that's where I got the idea about building the, the smaller version coming up with a spline and down the center copper board and then uh, the individual circuits are kinda of soldered to this copper board and that's how you ultimately end up with a radio that's uh, two inches by two inches in the front panel and four inches long But I gotta tell you that, that that was I had the the benefit of building version 1 and having that work and knowing that the circuits were proven uh, before I went to version two and make it really small. So uh, uh, there, there was a lot of effort, and that was not an original idea of mine to come up with that configuration. That came from Allison, and she's a, uh, an RF engineer consultant, so she uh, she knows pretty well what she's doing. And, and so she said, try this, and you have a lot of surface area, believe it or not. And because it's all copper and all together, you have individual shielding components. And that's another thing. Small size, you the point of circuit interaction that we were talking about. Using that, that spline technique enabled you to isolate various parts of the circuits so that you did not get the feedback and you don't have a common ground plane. So it's from heat dissipation, it's from isolation, what have you. But, but I'm with you. Start with a, a 10 by 12 inch board. Get it working. <laughs> have fun with it. And then th- think about how can I get this down to a smaller size. Don't, don't always think I'm only going to build one of these. Think about, I'm going to build the first one, prototype, get it working, and then figure out how to shrink it down. Yeah. So I, I, I think that, that's, that's, that only makes sense.
0: I'm going to put a picture of the uh, of the rig with the spine on it. It's, I know it's on your uh, your website and on your YouTube site, but I'm going to pick, put a picture of it there just so that people get, you know get a, will get a picture of it. it and it, what I'll try to describe it is Pete's got a relatively small board. But then he's got kind of vertical to the board. He's got another board running down the center that forms kind of a spine. And so it, it immediately divides the, the, the original board into two portions. And then you could put additional uh, vertical boards off the spine. And you end up with really nice little compartments and uh, build your circuitry in there. And so this gets you past the problem that we discussed earlier with Burt's Bidex. And that is that everything is so close to each other. If they've got that copper ground plane between them, they're electrically Further apart, and uh, and Pete, I just wanted to to, to to agree with what you said about the advice from from Allison. Over the years, I've i really benefited from her uh, real deep expertise on this stuff, and she's been really a source of of great uh, advice and wisdom on homebrewing and RF and, and troubleshooting for all of us. So, uh, three cheers for, for Allison and her, I mean, long long uh, series of, of of contributions to the to the radio arts. So so great stuff. But yeah, and I think I think smaller is 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 harder, and uh, I've I've certainly been going in the opposite direction. And you know, maybe um, the next thing we could talk about is uh, is tuning. And uh, we got a question. I think so when we asked last time what people wanted us to discuss, and uh, a couple of our readers wrote in and talked about kind of kind of arrangements for for tuning. You know, um, our beloved um, variable capacitors are getting. Well, they're not really hard to find. I was at the uh, Hamfest a couple of weeks ago, and you could find a lot of them there. But it's—they're uh, getting harder to find, and uh, and they're—they can represent an expensive part in a in other in an otherwise inexpensive rig. I think this is one of the ways that Farhan kept the cost of that Bidex so really phenomenally low. I mean, five bucks if you buy all the parts—that's <laughs> just amazing. And I've I've gone around and shown the BidEx at, at HamFest. I did another one at Manassas, Virginia, uh, two weeks ago. And guys immediately said, wait a second, wait a second. You said five bucks, but you've got that variable capacitor in there, and that's more than five bucks right there. Yeah. And the, yeah. <laughs> and the answer is, of course, that, that Farhan uh, used, he basically used kind of a band spread fine tuning arrangement with the original BidEx. And the the main tuning knob was, I I believe, a polyvaricon, a really easy-to-obtain variable capacitor. And then for the fine-tuning, they used uh, a varactor diode. And so uh, this is really kind of interesting uh, circuitry, and it's a great way around the expensive variable cap. It also is a lot simpler than the um, the digital direct synthesis, or SI570, that we're seeing now in the minima. And... uh, but I wonder what your thoughts are on on varactor tuning and and polyvaricons.
1: Well, I, I can tell you. Um, uh, first, of my experience, I've I haven't used a polyvaricon except on one radio and uh, had it in there a short while and then pulled it out. It, it was drifting. So um, I mean, we got to understand what they are. You can buy a polyvaricon for a couple of bucks and. Uh, it's not like the sturdy, heavy, mechanical, uh, ARC-5 type capacitors that some of us have stashed away somewhere with a gear tuning that, uh, you know, won't drift. And, uh, you know, when, when faced with tuning, I either use a DDS or a Veractor. And, and the beauty of the reactor, uh is that you can do some wonderful things with uh, resistors to, to limit ranges. And, and I think that that's really, really nice. Like, for instance, if you wanted to build a 40-meter CW transceiver and you say, look, uh, I'm interested in tuning from 7025 to 7055, you can set that baractor up so that it'll just fit right, right in that slot. And uh, the only thing that you have to be careful about is to have a good regulated supply that you're you're feeding the voltage from the pot into the reactor another thing is use something better than a 59 cent pot (laughs) okay so so once you you put a good pot in there and once you have a good and use a three terminal regulator don't don't use a a zener diode dropping off the main supply put a good solid three terminal regulator regulator in there and um, as a matter of fact one of the things you could do is use the LM317Z where, where you can set the voltage uh, quite precisely, and uh, use that to feed uh, your, your tuning pot, and you get everything down really small. The uh, The only problem with the varactors now, one of the most popular, is the MV209, and uh, the MV209 has about a 40 picofarad spread, which is really, really uh, excellent for, for slow tuning rate. As a matter of fact, you don't need any kind of... Uh, Vernier drive on that you can just uh, you know tune the pot to, uh, through a 270 degree range. Of course, you have to understand that you get a little nonlinearity, so it's not necessarily uh, you increment it one degree and it tunes one kilohertz. Uh, so you you'll get a little uh, down at the lower end, you'll get you know a little bit different band spread. So, um, but the varactors work perfect, and as a matter of fact, the uh, the secret <laughs> to the uh, to the shirt pocket transceiver is it's using a veractor tuning in that to, to tune the VXL, so it, it, it sets the capacitor range uh, through a very very small high quality pot it's a 10k pot and that's how you're able to tune it. As a matter of fact what dictated the, the, the really ultimate size of the uh, shirt pocket transceiver was how much front panel space you had. I, I couldn't get everything in Anything less than two inches by two inches, but a lot of that was done with a varactor. You could never build that with a, a variable capacitor. So, my vote is varactor uh, or DDS. Forget the variable capacitors. Or forget the poly- polyvericon. Matter of fact, uh, Hayward again. You'll hear me mention him frequently. Said, "Don't do it," <laughs> and so that was sage advice. Uh, sure, you can do it in a pinch. You can do it to get something working, but. You know, in a final configuration, I, I'd go with a varactor if you're not going to use the DDS.
0: You know, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Wes, but I I, um, I, I think on when I, when I think about the varactors, I think about uh, Doug DeMauw. And I remember, I think, I may be wrong, but I think he offered some, some cautionary statements on, on using varactors. And he pointed out that with the varactor, and I guess it depends on what diode you're using and the quality of the pot and how much current you're running through it and how much voltage you're putting on it, but some of these varactors, some of the diodes, can have kind of a long warm-up period. It's ironic. You wouldn't expect it. But, but I, I've experienced that too. For example, the last time I've used a varactor is in my uh, Herring-Aid 5 receiver. Uh, this is a, I, I've been telling the story here on the podcast. I'm sure people are sick of hearing about it. But it's a receiver that I tried to build first back in 1976 as a teenager. Couldn't get it working, and then I decided last year to get it going, and I did. And one of the things that attracted me to it back then was the physics of the varactor diode. I, for some reason, you know, and who knows why these things kind of appeal to the teenage mind, but it, it, for me, the physics of the varactor diode and how we were using it as a variable capacitor was really intriguing. I mean, what you're doing there is by varying the voltage on this diode, you're varying the width of the depletion zone in the diode, and you're, in effect, moving the plates of the diode closer and further away from each other, increasing and decreasing the capacitance of the diode, and I found that really kind of cool, and I wa- that's one of the reasons I wanted to build the herring Aid 5 But I remember, I think, in his QRP notebook or design notebook, uh, Doug Desmois caution that you had to be careful because, you know, some of the ordinary diodes, maybe not the, the one that you mentioned, but some of the ordinary diodes will take a while to settle down, which is, you know, you think that you're going with a solid state device and you're moving away from one of these old capacitors that you pulled out of an All-American 5 receiver. You'd think that the solid state device would be more stable. But I, I really noticed that in the Herring-Aid 5, that if I, I turned it on There'd be a long period, maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes, where I would notice the thing was just slowly drifting. And what was happening is I think that diode was just slowly kind of heating. And just just as heating in a capacitor would change the capacitance, the heating in the diode, especially a small little device, will uh, will affect it. So, uh, um, but I, I I I'm a I'm a big fan of the varactors, and I'm really glad I got the Herring-Aid five going. You bet. Well,
1: I think you're right because, you know, the junction capacitance is changing, as you're saying, as you're changing the depletion zone. And uh, capacitors drift. Why? Because of temperature. (laughs) That's why capacitors drift. So, uh, you know, until it gets warmed up. Now, I've had really good success with the MV209. They're very hard to find these days. Um, There are others, uh, and and there are some other techniques. Like, for instance, they use two varactors back-to-back. Now that limits the that limits the tuning range, but that also would do something with regard to sharing the heat through uh, through several capacitors versus one capacitor. So I mean, there's some some tricks to be done, but I have not seen that with the MB two hundred nine. I just I bought a bag of them, and and the bag is not quite gone as yet, and I've had really good success with them. So uh, you know, that's been my experience, and and quite a few radios I've built have the vector tuning. So I,
0: I'm all for that. Oh, really good. I. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, and you know, you you mentioned heat, and we're that kind of brings us to VFO stability, and it's a really interesting topic, but I think it's the kind of topic that if you're not careful, you could get really get dragged down into a, a technical kind of labyrinth, because when I was trying to get my the VFO on the on the twenty forty rig stable, I started to do uh, I started to go back to the old QST articles and solid state design and experimental methods. And there are a number of really excellent articles in there about uh, temperature compensation and what you have to do and how you have to study it in a really detailed way of doing it. But I, I tell you what, Pete, I bailed out. I just said, you know, that's just, it's too much. It's, it, was, it was too complicated. And I guess you, if you were really kind of into it and really, really concerned about the, the drift or if you were working on a, uh, a circuit for a commercial project where it was really critical, It'd be worth doing it, but for me, it was just it was just too much. So I just sort of did kind of a cut down version of it. And you know, there's a there's a number of pieces of uh, kind of of kind of ham radio wisdom that you employ. You know, you you do want to use the NPO caps. You do want to split the capacitance up into several different caps, so you don't. You know, you'd be better off using three 100 picofarad right. caps instead of one 300 picofarad cap. Because you're spreading Share the, the current out, um, yep. and you know uh, the voltage regulation, keeping the heat out of the box. So, for example, I have a little Zener diode and a resistor that kind of regulates the voltage. But I have that outside the VFO box, and just the fact that I have the VFO in a separate box, I think really helps. But but even with that, I think the one of the things you have to realize is that one of the, the moment that that's that that VFO becomes stable is really the moment that the interior of the box reaches thermal equilibrium. If it's not at thermal equilibrium, it's going to be drifting because the temperature is going to be changing. But if you've got a fixed amount of of heat going in there and a fixed amount of dissipation from the exterior of the box, you know, after X number of minutes, it's going to reach equilibrium and the temperature is going to stay the same. And so I'm I'm pleased with my uh, kind of Cut-down version of the uh, temperature compensation process. I don't think I really need to get that much deeper into it And it's it's stable somebody was asking. I think it was uh, Bert was asking how stable is stable enough and uh, (laughs) That's an interesting question
1: Well, you you know, uh, I I wanted to uh, follow up on that when I built my bid X the first one uh, two, two guys, uh, both offshore, EI9GQ, Ed Skelton in, uh, in Ireland, and uh, Ron Tater, G4GXO, they have these uh, huff and puff circuits, uh, and I built, uh, I built at least a dozen of Ed's uh, circuits, and that's what I used on my Bidex, and, and I just didn't worry about it. I built the BFO reasonable care, and uh, just hook the huff and puff to it, and uh, it just holds things, uh, you, you know, really, really stable. And uh, same thing with uh, uh, with the G4 GXO. He offers a commercial kit, and that that's kind of great for some of these old boat anchors that you want to want to nail down. But but I think the thing is, is that uh, uh, you you know you have to employ reasonable design. This is where a good box. Uh, a good size box for the VFO, it lets you uh, have a nice uh, roomy uh, environment so that they can temperature stabilize, and that that also keeps uh, external heat away from the, the frequency der- determining components. Use good quality components. Stay away from toroids. If you can find a nice ceramic form uh, when you go to the ham fest uh, if you see a ceramic form with a broken coil on it buy it <laughs> because it's the form it's important not the coil oh yeah <laughs> and a, and and wind it yourself and then uh, everything's solid mechanically you know you can't just uh, build the stuff helter skelter it's got to be rigid in there so things don't move around and that, that, that there's some there's a little art to doing this it's not just you know getting a Manhattan style and throw in a bunch of components and say, hey, don't drift. Well, you know, you do that, you might, you might luck out one out of a million times, but for the most part, there's, there's a whole art and science to building a, a very stable VFO if you're going to do it without a, an external aid such as a VFO stabilizer. Yeah. So uh, we, we've all been there, and uh, that's why I, I like the Baractor uh, tuning because it's less prone to the mechanical. Uh, movements that you would have with a, a you know a variable capacitor, uh, and I think the other thing is is that uh, you can you can mount it in a box and not to worry too much about heat or drifting f- uh, from the varactor itself uh, once it's come up to temperature. So a lot lot to be said with uh, with good construction practice. Uh, it makes a big
0: difference in a successful project. Oh yeah, this and this, but, this this is an area where the the, the sage advice from uh, from Doug Demore really. Say, while while I found that, you know, like I said, a lot of the articles on temperature compensation were just a little bit too deep in detail for me, Dumas presented, as he always does, a really good kind of the basics, what you really need to concentrate on, and all the points you mentioned, but I'm really glad you mentioned avoiding toroids, because that's something that Doug Dumas really uh, kind of mentioned a lot, and he said you're much better off with even kind of an air coil, uh, an air core coil. So when it came time for me to build the, uh, the Bidex 2040, I was looking around for something of suitable size for the coil form, and I, I found a, a coat hanger, and you know, some of these coat hangers have along the bottom kind of a horizontal cardboard tube, and I guess it's about, I don't know, maybe two centimeters wide or something like that, maybe one, and I just chopped it up, and I, I, I took out a chunk that looked like it was about the right size, and I just started winding uh, enameled wire on it, and then using my L C meter, just periodically measuring how much inductance I'd put on that thing. And I got it up to like three microhenries, which looked about right. And I took it, and I, I glued it to a chunk of balsa wood, and then the so the balsa wood supports it, the and the, so there's not a whole lot of thermal coupling there. And then I just glued the balsa wood to the base of the, the P C board, and that's it. And it was so much more stable than anything I had tried with uh, with, a, with a toroidal core that, uh, well, I, I thank Doug DeMauw. His, his influence is still being felt. Right.
1: I wanted to get back to Bert's question, how stable is stable? Ah, yeah. huh? I want to share a story with you uh, no, no older than about three days ago. I'm on the air with one of my homebrew rigs, and the guy at the other end said, hey, get on frequency. You're 20 hertz
0: low. Oh, man. oh this is is a sore point i got one too i got one too go ahead finish
1: yeah 20 hertz low come on this is a homebrew rig you know and he's he's reading it with some 10-digit frequency counter he said get on frequency you're 20 hertz low so uh, unfortunately because of the technology available with uh, some of the commercial radios you can really tell that somebody's 20 hertz low but i mean i if i was two kilohertz low i could see maybe a complaint but 20 hertz that you can hardly distinguish that, but he was looking at his radio, not his ear. He was not using his ears to listen. So, oh, I know. You know
0: how close is how close is close? Well, yeah, this is a, this raises a couple of points here, and I guess we can kind of kind of homebrew or commiserate here because it, the experience on the air has has changed in recent years, and I think guys have become uh, less and less uh, kind of uh, aware of the fact that there are people out there with homebrew rigs because there are so few of us. But I've had a recent. i I've had experiences, I think I mentioned, we talked about this last time, where you, uh, you call CQ, and you're calling CQ. The frequency is clear, and somebody comes back and says to you, after you called CQ, that you're off frequency. And it's because you're not on a full integer uh, a frequency. I mean, I don't even know where I am, really. I know that I'm in the band. I know roughly where I am, but I don't have a digital readout. And so you, you, you call, you go back to the guy and you really, you realize that he's under the impression that there's some sort of norm or rule or custom where you have to be on some sort of whole number, you know, interval, interval frequency wise. So you get that. But I I have, I have a a story. You'll get a kick out of this. It happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I was calling CQ on 17. I think it was on 17. It might've been on 40, probably 40, but I'm calling CQ on 40. Yeah, it was 40. And, uh, the frequency's clear. I'm calling CQ. And a guy comes back to me, and he is like noticeably off frequency. And so I'm, I'm kind of sensitive to this, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, this is one of these guys who's fanatical about round number integral, you know, <laughs> integer frequency. And I'm, I'm bracing myself thinking he's going to start lecturing me about how I'm off frequency when I'm calling CQ. So I had, you know, I was, I was you know, I had kind of had my uh, my guard up. I wasn't going to get into a big, you know, dispute with him because I don't do that on the air, but I was I was wary. But you know what, Pete, it turned out to be exactly the opposite because it turned out that he was running a Halicrafter's HT50 and he was doing the best he could to zero beat with me. <laughs> so I, I finally had <laughs> yeah. run into somebody who had... Uh, you know, less capability in terms of frequency accuracy than I did. So we had a nice, a real nice chat, the two of us there, probably uh, drifting drifting along to the, uh, you know, creating anguish among the uh, the guys with the 10-digit frequency readouts.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. And as, as a matter of fact, it's curious. I was having a QSO last night with one of my homebrew radios, and uh, the guy says, uh, you know, we're on point .5. I said, yeah. He said, well, I don't have any hang-ups about always calling on even integers. He said, I just put the radio where it is, and he said, I'm I'm glad you picked me up, so it's kind of the reverse. And we were sharing the fact that uh, when we first got started in this hobby, uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, as of yesterday, it's been 55 years for me, uh, my my first rig was a 6L6 on a wooden chassis and an arc-5, 80-meter arc-5 receiver, and and you'd call CQ and tune up and down the band (laughs) listening. They didn't zero beat you, you know. Somebody had a slightly different crystal, and they were listening at you, and you had to listen for them. So it was not unusual to be 10 kilohertz apart uh, having a QSO, and that that was the old days. But today, it's uh, 10 hertz, and you're off frequency.
0: Well, I was on, you know, I I always tell everybody, I I pretty much, I still have, not my original rig, but my original general class rig. I still have it sitting there right next to me. It's the, the Drake 2B and the Holocrafters HT37. And I, I don't use it that much, but it's still here. It's ready to go. It still works. And every once in a while, I'll fire it up. And I, I did, and I, I, I guess I hadn't let the HT37 warm up sufficiently, because it will drift a little bit if it's from a cold start. It's usually pretty good, but it will drift. And um, so I, I, I was talking to this guy, and you know, he, he, he kind of sounded kind of cranky, if you know what I mean. And he, he, he kind of came back to me, and he said, hey, you know, You're drifting. You're, you're drifting like it was like a shocking revelation and I said yeah well you know I'm running a halicrafters ht37 and I kind of joked I said it's 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 older than I am and he said um, well he came back and he said it's 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 drifted I said well how much how much of a drift do you think it's had he said well I I think since we've started it's drifted like 200 Hertz wow <laughs> and I and I said, "Well, I said, you know, that's just the way it is. These older rigs—they drifted a little bit." And and he, he then he came back and he said, "In this modern day, that's just unacceptable, unacceptable." And I, well, I just I, I kind of just wrapped it up at that point. But I, it wasn't unacceptable to me, and I'm the one who's who's running the rigs. But anyway, it's a it's a new day out there, uh, uh, Pete, and we uh, we home brewers have to kind of uh, kind of stick together. Hey, let me ask you a question: Have you ever? worked, randomly, on the air, another homebrew phone rig? Uh,
1: yes. Wow. I have. Wow. Yeah, and QRP, QRP. 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 Yeah, but it's it's been really rare, really rare. Most of the time when I say I'm running a homebrew transceiver, uh, and then people will, I find now that uh, people have their computer right next to them, They'll they'll look up my call sign on curezet.com and they said, "Are you using the radio that I yeah, see in the that, picture?" That, that's a lot of. Fun. I'll say, I'll say, no, not that one. But if you scroll down, I'm using that one. And so, uh, but uh, not too many. As a matter of fact, you'll hear people quite honestly admit, say, "Look, I've been a ham, you know, ten years, and I'm a clients operator. I just don't know enough to do that." And and you know, on on the other hand, though, uh, Bill, I th- I think that that's. If you want to be in this hobby, you have so many facets. You could like the homebrew or just operate. But I I think it's uh, kind of fun to build a radio and get on the air and say, the station here is homebrew. I mean, there's just uh, a buzz I get to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, I got the screwdriver out a lot (laughs) with the homebrew radios. And the soldering iron is always on sort of warm. But, uh, I mean, I've learned a lot. and, And I think today, and that was a comment I made last evening, there is so much new technology available to us that it, it's all building block approach. And, and you know, when I built sideband radios uh, 30 years ago, they were all back into, that was a major undertaking. But today it's far easier because the, the blocks are simpler and there's uh, there's a, a, a lot a lot, a lot, of technology available to you, a lot of information on the internet. That's the other thing too, is that you have a lot of resources available to you to, to try different things. Yeah.
0: So, well, you know, it, I, you mentioned you know uh, appliance operators, and I, I don't, I don't really like to, you know, I, I joke around sometimes about it, but I, I don't like, uh, I don't want to offend anybody or anything like that, because everybody that has their own thing that they like, sure, and it's sure. and it's a hobby, but I heard a phrase this week that really kind of caught my attention, and it's it's one step beyond appliance, it's commodity. Now, look, let me explain. I, I listened. There's another uh, podcast. That I listened, I think it's really nice. It's a, it's ICQ podcast. It's out of the UK. It's a father son team, and the father is in in South London, and the son is in Ireland. And they get on, and they they really they do a nice job. And it's it's I think it's not really oriented towards homebrew ham radio, but they do a lot of discussion of kind of cutting edge stuff and uh, the digital modes and everything. And they're two very nice fellows, and, and it's really nice to have the kind of the father son combination there. But I was listening to him the other day, and the father was lamenting the fact that he was looking at a new handheld. I think that he had purchased from Kenwood, and he had been for, he had spent his career in the in the in the business of servicing mobile radios. And somebody had brought him a radio that needed to be fixed, and he cracked it open, and he looked around, and he found the part that he needed, and he he got in touch with Kenwood, and they told him that that spare parts for these radios are not available and will not be made available. So they're basically, and then they, these guys started talking about these radios have now become commodities that it's, it's, it's very much like what's happened with computers where you don't fix it. Throw you throw it away. I mean, you know, it's like at work, you know, you call the IT guys and they just, they they come in with a cart with another computer and then boom, it's gone. They just put another one in there. It's like one part. So, um, yeah, I think we're we're moving. Some of this stuff is moving into the age of commodity radios, and the, the guys on the podcast were kind of lamenting it. But um, I guess it's inevitable as we get more and more into surface mount, and as we get more and more of the radio going into one chip. But um, anyway, it's, a, it's kind of a, kind of a different. I think there there is kind of a, a divergence in, in in technology, and those of us who are sticking with the homebrew stuff are kind of. I don't know. There's there are people who are taking a, you know just a very different technological approach, and I think the commodity thing is really kind of interesting.
1: Well, you know, there's a, another side to this bill, and I guess it's a, I'm a product of having been around a long time, and, uh, and and a dollar is still a lot of money to me, and uh, I, I just I, frankly I have a hard time going out and spending five thousand dollars for a radio, <laughs> you know. And, uh, but some people just, it's a blink of an eye. As a matter of fact, I happen to see, uh, uh, I think it's the latest uh, QST. There's a new uh, SDR radio called the Zeus. Have, have you seen that? No, no. It's, it's, it's come from SSB Electronics in Germany, and it's a 15 watt radio. And uh, it just uh, really looks good. As a matter of fact, it's being distributed by the, the guy that used to be with Tentec. It's now got the Viberplex company. Uh-huh. Uh, Scott Robbins. Scott Robbins, I think, is the guy's name. Anyway, that thing costs 1500 bucks, and, and I'm saying, you know, I have a problem spending $1,500 for, for a radio that puts out 15 watts. So that's why I think the value of the homebrew is you can build a 15 watt radio maybe for $100, you know, and it's possible, like the Farhan example, you know, $5. So, and many times when you get those radios, you don't operate all the bands. There's there's two or three bands we all like to operate, you know, 40, 20, 17, 15 meters. So uh, why, not, why not build something yourself and add the features and uh, with the... Uh, with the technology it's available you can have a a good quality radio that you build yourself don't spend a lot of money and it gives you most of the bells and whistles it won't have you know multiple memories and it won't have uh, you know a lot of things uh, dsp and uh, all sorts of things but but it'll have you a, a, a good enough radio to make lots of contacts and have a lot of fun and you don't have to spend a ton of money to do it
0: yeah you know but it, it's interesting uh... In terms of uh, the expenditure or the investment, I had an interesting question when I was out at the Manassas Hamfest uh, two weeks ago. Um, I was even at the talk on the Bidex, the same one that I had done earlier at, at Vienna Wireless, and you know there was a pretty good crowd there. It was like we had 20 or 30 guys in the group, maybe maybe a little bit less, maybe around 20, but they were all very interested. But when I, I went through the whole thing, and I actually did have one slide where I talked about how much time it took to build one of these things, which I didn't really find excessive I said that I worked on it a little bit in the morning before work and the whole thing came together in the course of about two months which for me seemed fine I mean it wasn't like I was working on it for a decade or anything like that but uh, anyway at the end of the presentation one guy stood up and he kind of I I don't know it seemed a kind of a pointed question he said well how many hours have you put into this project and I I kind of, I was kind of taken aback by the question one, because I'd sort of answered it, but I just said to him, well, look, I didn't, I didn't keep an hour count. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not work. It's not like you have to account for all of your hours. I just said, you know, I worked it on a little bit in the morning and, uh, but he was, he was really, I think, focused on the fact that, oh, sure. It might be cheaper. It might be fun, but there's just way too much time putting in there. I didn't have time to think about it, but I would have, I, th- I think if I had to answer it again, I would have said, well, I. I didn't keep an accurate count, but almost all of them were fun and I enjoyed building it, you know, and right. so it's not, yes. it, it's, it's not like it was this great sacrifice. It's not like I was sitting there at the bench, you know, suffering, you know, and, uh, and I, I so yeah, I think people have, you know, different reasons for not wanting to get into homebrew, but again, it, it's to each his own. So, Hey, uh. it's,
1: it's. It's an investment in learning, too. Yeah. And, you know, as you build each stage, you learn about it and say, oh, that's why that works. So
0: that's great. Yeah. Listen, I, I we're, we're running up to our, our hour point here. And again, we haven't really hit everything. So this, this, we may have, I'm hoping we're going to go to part three eventually, Pete, if you don't mind. But maybe a couple I'll, things, I'll Couple it. things we could talk about before we go. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about before we wrap up or any of the topics on your list that we hadn't hit? Well, I, I want to talk about your HW-101. Ah, yes. What should I do? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I when I did that project with the HW-101, I was really impressed with the Heathkit engineering. I was really impressed. Uh, it is a good quality radio that was designed in the 1960s, maybe latter part of the 1950s. And, and with some things that you do, there's a... Uh, there's some wonderful information on the internet about how to modify the radio to add some changes in components or change a couple of tubes. Once you do that, you have a really, really excellent radio. And when you add uh, a digital display to it and you add a frequency stable error, I put an X-lock in there. That thing doesn't move. And with the AAD uh, digital display, it follows the sideband. So you put in a lower sideband, the display says... Lower sideband you put an upper sideband so I mean that to me is really cool and uh, it, it just sounds so good uh, I mean the only one objectionable thing is uh, if you're in a small space it gets a little warm because you got all those tubes uh, with, with the heaters and the filament voltage but the audio is great the, the transmitted audio is terrific and I, I, I in general I'm just saying there's a lot of boat anchors out there that you could acquire for not a lot of money that if you fix the drifting BFO, which essentially is what the X-Lock and the digital display does, you you have a radio that will compete with anything today. And it's a really, really good. It's sensitive on the upper bands. And um, the other thing, too, is you you have the option, you can find the two filters. So if you're a CW guy, you can put the 400 Hz filter in there and uh, have something that really, really works good. And if you like the Tinker, you can even add a remote VFO to it so that you can do split frequency operations. So lots of things that can be done. Well, you know,
0: I, I the reason I was attracted to this rig, it was the kind of rig that I sort of uh, longed for when I was a, a teenage ham. They, they used one. I was a member of the Crystal Radio Club outside New York City as a kid. And uh, I used to go to field day with them. And they always had the novice station was an HW-101. And I remember thinking, that is just the coolest radio. I, I wish I had one of these. So, you know, later on as an adult, uh, I picked one up. I was living in the Dominican Republic, and I got it off eBay. And it was the one I got is it was in good shape. The guy who built it did a good job. But I, I found that uh, – I, I agree with you, what you say about the design. But I found that it, it's the kind of rig that because, you know, Heathkit was trying to make a poor man's KWM-2 – and so they, they cut a, quarter, a lot of corners to save money. And so a lot of the components in there, you know, are not built to last for the millennium, you know. They, and so, I, I mean, I joke about the HW-101. There's actually a clutch in the HW-101, the dial clutch. There's a button on the front that you would push to calibrate the tuning dial to the actual frequency. And I, one time in the Dominican Republic, I pushed that button very gently and I heard this disturbing crack sound from behind the panel the thing had shattered i mean it, it had dried out and shattered i, I the, the vfo was jumping all over the place so in one of my initial forays out onto the internet to look for advice some old-timer in arizona sent me back an email and said put three drops of oil on the reduction drive at the on the vfo and it'll solve your problem Three drops later, the thing's working. So I, I'm thinking, God, this is a rig where I have to change the oil and change the clutch. I mean, this is <laughs> this is like high maintenance, you know? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I, I, I like the rig. It gets, it gets hot and everything else. But the other thing is a lot of times when you hear people talking about kind of redoing an HW101, they talk about going in there and changing all the capacitors. You know, change all the capacitors, all the bypass caps, all the caps to ground, change them all. Man, that's a lot of capacitors, a lot of boards in there. It's a lot of assembly and disassembly. So I get... Turned off by that I never really liked also I don't know how you feel about it but but a tube sockets on PC boards it just seems to me kind of a I don't know kind of a kind of a weird hybrid I don't know some people I guess like it I I I don't know so here's my question what I you know I I think you probably heard me a couple times thinking I was thinking about completely gutting it take all the tube technology out except for the driver and the final right and then use the filters Use the, even use the VFO, put a put an FET in, in, instead of the tube-to-tube tube oscillator, and then basically replace all the circuitry in there with BIDX circuitry. In other words, turn it into a BIDX 101. The advantages would be real simplicity. I already have the filters. I have the CW and the SSB filters. I have probably enough you know, all the, I, I'd leave all the frequency components in there so I could switch bands. I could end up with a five-band transceiver, as we have now. Um, and I'd get away from most of the heat, most of the tubes, and I'd end up with a very kind of simple circuit. But I, I, I've, I've, I've had this thing on the bench a couple times that I just don't have the heart to do it. So what do you think?
1: Well, uh, interesting you should mention that, because um, in 2009... I, I built a solid-state version of the HW100, which uses the filters and, and all the frequency scheme. So if you look on my website, uh, www.gessystems.com, you'll see the 209, 2009 transceiver, and all the circuits are there. So if you just want to lift those circuits, you could take and replace everything, use the same frequency scheme. Uh, in my case, I replaced the Heathkit VFO with a PTO out of a Tentech. So you get the advantage of a, of a, a PTO better than a vacuum tube VFO. So uh, if you want to do it, take a look at that. And essentially, you could gut it and just use those circuits and then keep the driver in the final. And you'd have a, you'd have a hybrid hybrid radio. So yeah. I'd say I've done it. So there's no reason why you can do it can't do it and, and and that filter is really really excellent that's an excellent filter it's wide enough so that it doesn't sound pinched and so you'd end up with a really nice uh, product matter of fact uh, on the website there there's a youtube video you can click on that and you can listen
0: to the radio operating on 15 and 40 and uh 20 meters well you know you, you you've inspired me here but you know i gotta say the, the the hw 101 it's on the shelf behind me here in the shack and i, I can sort of sense that it's kind of twitching it's kind of nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Yellow rig. Uh, and I said, and by the way, I, I think the HW-101, I think one of the differences between the 100 and the 101, I think the 101 has a PTO in it. I think the, I think, uh, am I wrong? Is it?
1: Right. It's a VFR. Oh, really? Okay. It's when you went to the SB-101, ah, right. 102, yeah. that, then you had the, the PTO. The PTO. Yeah, right. Actually, they used an LMO, ah. and they had that commercially made, you, you after a while, they, they were worried about people maybe building one of those in their garage. So uh, I think uh, people like um, TRW was making the uh, the, the LMO, so They call it a linear master oscillator. Yeah. But the uh, 101 has a VFO in it.
0: All right. Let me ask you this. Uh, one, one, one thing we get that kind of fits in well with this. You know, when I had problems with the HW101, I, I realized later that a lot of the problems I was having with the rig were not with the core circuits of the rig. They were with kind of the add-ons, with the frills. They have a kind of an automatic gain control system that prevents you from flat-topping on transmit. And uh, they also have a lot of circuitry in there for, uh, for QSK and for Vox. And it was those circuits that gave me the most trouble, the most headache. I never really got, the Vox circuit started doing weird things on me, it started cycling. And, uh, you know, you would set the delay for the vox, and it would be stable for a few minutes, and then it would start doing all kinds of crazy things. So what I ended up doing was I ended up going in there and kind of removing these circuits from the rig. So I would, yeah, I basically turned it to push to talk, and that was fine. Um, And then I got, then I was getting feedback through this um, kind of flat topping circuit that they had in there. So I took that out. And this made me realize that there are advantages to getting rid of the frills in rigs like this. So and this is a topic that comes up. You know, the, one of the things about uh, the X is that it's a very no-frills radio. No S-meter, no AGC. Uh, the, the the AGC thing, I know it drives a lot of people crazy. It doesn't bother me a bit. I just don't use it with headphones. Headphones are not recommended. But uh, I have a nice big speaker that sits behind it. And if it gets too loud, I just turn the volume down. I wonder what your thoughts are on, uh, on no-frills rigs, uh, Pete.
1: Oh, well, you know, the simpler the better. And... Uh you know, if, you don't, if it's not there, it's not something that can go bad or requires constant adjustment. So, I mean, it, it's okay to have a radio without an AGC. Uh, that's what they made volume controls for. It'd be nice if it was automatic, but you can uh, just reduce the volume. And I think you're right, too. With, uh, with the headphones, uh, you risk uh, ear damage, so <laughs> you don't want to do that. But, by the way, just a quick comment on the HW-101. A lot of those things you, you've described... Some of that is uh, the fact that the original Heathkit tubes were, were not really good tubes and they recommend replacing all the Heathkit branded tubes because they were 5-volt filament tubes instead of 6.3-volt. And uh, that's, that's information and some of those things that you described, um, there's a uh, lengthy document on the internet that tells you how to fix exactly those problems you've you've mentioned. So, I mean, Someone has addressed these, and I did replace all the capacitors, by the way. Not that hard of a job. <laughs> and I didn't have to pull all the circuit boards to do that. You, you can actually do it while, while the thing is built. But uh, it was just something. I had a bag of capacitors, and I said, I'll, I'll try it. But uh, a lot of my radios are no frills, and uh, they, they work, and they work well. And it's just that when you, once you understand the limitations, then, then you're okay. And uh, if you want to add an S meter, you can. If you want to add AGC, you can but not really required, and especially if uh, someone's operating QRP in the field. S-meter doesn't make any sense, and AGC doesn't make any sense. So if you're you're contesting, maybe you want that. But if you just want a radio
0: that you want to plug in, simple is better. There you go. I'm with you. And I think on that note, we, we might as well wrap it up for this time. We've, we've made it through almost everything on our list, Pete. There's a couple of things we still need to discuss. We need to talk about the... Uh, the junk box and how to make a uh, how to gather the parts for a useful junk box we need to also talk about ladder filters and whether they can be used on LSB and USB there's a lot of discussion about that and i'm sure we'll come up with a whole bunch of other things so if you're amenable perhaps we can uh, we can foresee a part 3 sometime
1: absolutely absolutely we'll just we'll work out the schedule and make it happen i now you got me started talking about this stuff you know so i can't
0: stop (laughs) well our our listeners are grateful we get a lot of good feedback of people that really liked you uh on the program so let's plan for for part three and i I still have a few things pending the mailbox is building up so maybe next time we can go through the mailbox maybe we can even go through the mailbox together next time and uh and also uh bob crane our, our correspondent at fdim has uh, sent me some uh, banjo playing from the, the the four days in may done by actual homebrewing qrp radio amateurs so i need to get that on the air we'll do that <laughs> next time and he also sent a couple of, of additional interviews from the fdim event so we'll, we'll work that in but uh, uh pete giuliano uh, thanks very much for for being with us again here on, on solder smoke i really enjoyed it and i think our listeners are going to get a get a big kick out of it once again so uh, try not to solder the fingers together Pete that's it it's really bad
1: yeah <laughs> I know but I've got scars all over my hands I mean it's just you get so engrossed in uh, you know building the circuit you almost forget where the iron is so uh, that, that 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 that's the that's the mark of a true
0: homebrewer like <laughs> well, I, I have <laughs> soldered fingers I have one on my thumb I have a scar on my thumb that I got at age 13 it's still there. So uh, there's the mark. We'll have to. Yeah, (laughs) that is. (laughs) All right. Thanks very much, Pete.
1: You bet. We'll see you. 7-3. 7-3.